Heavenly Father, we worship you in spirit and in truth. Your word is true. Everything that is written from Genesis to Revelation, truth. And understanding who you are and your invitation to come, we worship you in truth. That also means we worship you with integrity and honesty of heart. Not as the hypocrites do, who draw near to you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. And we worship you today in spirit, our spirit to yours. And we worship spirited, enthusiastically. It may not be so evident in outward signs, but it is, Lord, we trust in inward reality that our hearts are thrilled to call you our own. And now make this time of worship personal, intimate, life-changing. And for those who don't know the Savior, I pray today that you will draw the scales from their eyes. Eliminate every obstacle. Let them see, clearly see, the Lord Jesus in all his beauty and the deep love of God for us. In whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. There are many things that amaze me. When I drive across the Mackinac Bridge, I'm amazed that it doesn't collapse every time. When I hold a newborn baby in my arms and see the miracle that God has wrought in the womb of a woman, I am in awe. I'm amazed. I'm astounded when the Detroit Tigers win a ball game. <laughs> and Surprise when I find myself driving on a smooth road in Michigan. I didn't see that coming. You know, we are amazed by many things, by the awesome and unexpected. But the question I have for you this morning is this What amazes God? You say, Well, nothing. And theologically, that is correct. For God is omniscient and knows everything. Isaiah tells us in chapter 64, the Lord says, I am the Lord, declaring the end from the beginning and the things that are not. All my counsel will stand. Everything that I have planned will come to pass. I will do all my pleasure. Nothing can surprise the omniscient, everywhere, eternal God. But there is some feature in the humanity of Jesus Christ which allows him at times to be surprised. Oh, no doubt it's an anthropomorphic word used to describe the divine nature incarnate, but nonetheless, it's used in the scriptures. And only one thing in reality amazes Jesus, just one thing. And it's found in the book of Matthew chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, Matthew chapter 8. Now this chapter immediately follows the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And so it's very fitting 
that the preacher with great authority in speaking demonstrates his great authority in miracles. There are no less than five miracles that Matthew has chosen to record in his eighth chapter. The first one is having to do with a leper who came to Jesus and begging him and bowing before him said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, reached out his hand and touched the leper and said, I'm willing, be clean. I don't think that was a cold and harsh transaction. I think tears might have been filling up in his eyes. His heart was filled with emotion and with a big smile. Jesus said, I'm willing. The next story is the one we want to focus on that actually begins in verse five. When Jesus had entered his adopted hometown, Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. The Greek historian uh, Polybius tells us that the centurion was the backbone of the Roman army, like a captain in ours. A Roman legion had 6,000 people and the legion was divided up into 60 groups of 100 and over every group of 100 was a century centurion to guide and direct them. They were steady, reliable commanders of men, not anxious to fight, but when pressed, would not back down, and they were willing to die at their post. What is interesting, amazing, is that every centurion mentioned in the Gospels and the Book of Acts is mentioned as a person of character and mentioned honorably. Think of the centurion at the foot of the cross when Jesus died, who gave that rich testimony, truly this is the Son of God. Or the centurion in the book of Acts, chapter 10, Cornelius of the Italian regiment, who was told of God that there's a message he needed to embrace, and Peter came and told him the gospel, and Cornelius and all his household were saved, a God-fearing, generous man. And maybe the guy that we're reading about here, and I think it is true, fits into that profile of a man of character and one who is honorable. So he comes to Jesus and the scripture says that he is asking. Uh, the English word asking might be a little too weak for the fact that this is a compound Greek word to intensify the moment and the request. Imploring, begging, pleading, something like that. He came to Jesus. He said, Lord, verse six, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. It's interesting that the trans, some translations make that a question. Shall I go and heal him? But I think the better rendering is a statement. I shall go and heal him. To the leper he said, I am willing. And to the centurion, I am willing. And I want you to notice from the scriptures how quick God is to extend mercy. How eager the Savior is to touch those who are deeply troubled and sense their need. I marvel at the mercy of Jesus. So quick. 
You think if you come to Christ and confess your sin that you're going to have a hard time with God? With a big smile, he reaches out to touch you and to save you, and he's eager to do so. But the centurion's response is notable. Verse eight, he said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That may be as simple as his acknowledgement that he is a Gentile and Jesus is a Jew and he knew that Jews were not to come into the homes of Gentiles or they would become unclean. But I think better yet, it's the recognition that this authoritative centurion does not deserve to be in the presence of Almighty God. He has this sense of being unworthy to have the wonderful Jesus come into his home. And so he says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Isn't that amazing? Just speak the word, a touch for the leper, a word for the centurion's servant. That's all it takes. And divine power is unleashed. This man was expressing faith, faith to go to Jesus in the first place as the one who could help his servant. And then amazing faith when he said, you don't even have to be there to heal. Boy, that's great because you and I don't have the literal presence of Jesus in our life, but we do have the real presence of Christ in our life and no distance is too great for him to overcome, to be with you in your time of need and pull you out of your pit of despair. He had faith to go and he had faith to believe. He said, you know, I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers under me, so I'm under authority and people are under my authority. I tell this one to go and he goes, this one to come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And by way of implication, he's saying, Jesus, you are under authority. You're under the authority of God and everything in the world is under your authority, even disease and suffering like leprosy or the palsy, whatever this servant had. That is astounding faith. Just say the word. Sounds a lot like Hebrews chapter 11 and verse three. By faith we understand that the universe was formed by the word of God. Just say the word. God spoke and the universe came into being. I pity the person who doesn't see the almighty power of our creator and must live a life under the sun without hope. Nowhere to go. So we read in verse 10, and here's this key verse. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he turned to those who were following him, probably the 12 and other disciples. Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus is amazed. It's a Greek word that's used about 46 times in the New Testament. It has the idea of being impressed as well as being surprised. Now the only way that you could connect this with God would have to be some connection to the human 
likeness of Jesus, the perfectly human nature that he possessed, but it's next to impossible to get into the psychology of the human nature of Jesus while he is perfectly divine. And yet the Lord brings this expression down to our level so we can see the amazement that filled the heart of the Savior. Never in the Gospels is Jesus amazed by anyone's skill or ability or righteousness or status, but he is amazed by this faith. Partly because the faith came from someone you wouldn't expect it from, right? A hard, rough soldier, a man of the world, uh, instrument of death, this human being who's a soldier expresses amazing faith in Christ. The word great is used at the end of the verse. It's a word or a phrase actually that means vast and huge. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but that's another place where great faith is translated in our New Testaments. It's when Jesus was talking to a woman who was looking for help and it's as though Jesus put her off but she would not take no for an answer and she continued and then the Lord Jesus said, I've never seen such great faith in Israel. Interesting that the two examples that he highlights are from Gentiles, not the Jews, which made them very upset. But the Greek word behind Matthew 15 is the Greek word mega, which we use in the English all the time. Mega faith. If you go to the end of chapter eight, you're going to see the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee when it is troubled and Jesus is coming to calm the storm and he says to them, O you of little faith. Now God's getting into assessing our faith. It's in Matthew 17, verse 20, where he talks about little faith, but he says it's not so much size, it's the idea of genuine or not. The mustard seed faith of Matthew 17. So apparently there's real faith, and then there's some faith that deteriorates down to a lower level of weak, little faith, and some that ascends up to great faith. I think our faith, we need to understand, can grow and develop and morph, morph into something significant. Faith shouldn't stay where it is, but grow. And if not exercised and used, faith can diminish and fade and shrivel up until you have puny faith. But the importance is Genuine faith, real faith, and even a growing faith. As I analyze the faith of this centurion, what sense, what sense was it great? I would say it's great in the sense of conception. Conception being a high view of a holy, omnipotent God. For without faith, it's impossible to please him, right? And what does it say about that kind of faith that pleases God? For he who comes to God must believe that he is. 
that he is who he said he was and that he exists. Our concept of God is at the basis of whether faith is small, weak, exercised or not. But it's not just in the concept of faith, it's in the expression of faith. This man's concept and the power and mercy of God was so great, he was compelled to go find Jesus. And in those two elements, you have the nature of faith, a high view of God, a belief that he is, and a belief that he will reward those who diligently seek him. So there's the expression of faith. You and I sometimes are very good at creedal faith. We announce what we believe and in words we speak very boldly. But when it comes to acts of faith or the outward expression of faith, sometimes there's nothing. Or at least it's very hard to see. So we need to express faith because we believe God is great and we believe God is good. There's a, a wonderful description of the importance of faith from an old English pastor by the name of J.C. Ryle. He said to believe Christ's power and willingness to help you and to make practical use of our belief is a rare and precious gift. Let us ever be thankful if we have it, to be willing to come to Jesus as helpless, lost sinners and commit our soul into his hands is a mighty privilege. Let us ever bless God if this willingness is ours, for it is a gift. Do you have that gift? Do you? To see him and to move toward him? He goes on to say, such faith is better than all the other gifts and knowledge the world could offer. Faith in Christ appears small and simple, a simple thing to the children of this world. They see in it nothing great or grand, but faith in Christ is most precious in God's sight. And like most precious things, it is rare. By it, true Christians live. By it, true Christians stand. And by it, they overcome the world. And from God's sight, faith in your soul delights him. But on this occasion, he indeed was amazed. It's Galatians chapter five and verse six that gives us the bottom line. The only thing that really counts is faith expressing itself through love. How is your faith? If we were to grade it on that scale of real faith, puny faith, growing and enlarging faith, where would you find yourself? By the way, notice the result of his faith, verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would be done. And his servant was healed at that very moment. By the time he got home, it was no surprise that the servant, the servant was healthy. And when they began to ask, okay, when did this happen? Oh, it was about an hour ago. That's exactly when Jesus spoke. 
and he received his servant back to life again. I like the New Living Translation. Because you believed, it happened. I wonder if, and again, under the sovereignty of God and his perfect plan that never fails, I wonder if things don't happen because we don't believe. Jim Simbola, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, said faith alone is the trigger that releases divine power. And that was the case in Matthew chapter 8. But there is another portion of scripture that talks about Jesus being amazed in this realm of faith. And it's in Matthew chapter 6. You can turn there if you want or just listen. As I mentioned to you, Matthew 6, 1, Jesus and the disciples are returning to his real hometown. The Capernaum was adopted hometown. Now he's going back to Nazareth. His hometown was a small village of about 10 acres with a population of maybe just over 200 people. And Jesus went into the synagogue, it tells us, on the Sabbath, and he began to teach And the people who heard him were amazed. Now, this homeboy done good, coming back, standing in the synagogue like a rabbi, and he's teaching. And the people are amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and and the power to perform such miracles? So they were amazed at his teaching, and they were amazed at the power inherent in him until someone said, wait a minute, isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter? By the way, using a word tecton, where we get, I think in the English, technical, but it has the idea of one skilled in working with both carpentry and masonry in that day. You have the word carpenter here, but he's a skilled craftsman. But we know him. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. They all live right among us. And they scoffed, and they were deeply offended, and they refused to believe in him. And we will be forever amazed amazed at those who believe in Christ from a group of people we thought never would, to being amazed at those who should believe in Christ and never do. Think of all the privileges that Nazareth had, his childhood, to witness his miracles, to know him up close, but they were too familiar. They took him for granted. They overlooked as common this one who looked like a prophet and did amazing things. And of course, that's when Jesus said, a prophet is without honor in his own country. That's verse four. What was the result of this lack of faith? Verse five. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Verse six again brings that same word that was used in Matthew eight, Jesus marveling, Jesus amazed, astounded. 
On the one hand, it was because of great faith, where you maybe wouldn't expect it, and now it's the lack of faith, where faith should be vibrant. Among people who knew him so well, and then you have that haunting verse, he could not do any miracles there. Now God can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign enough. He's powerful enough to do all his holy pleasure. But our faith somehow hinders him. The absence of faith does not completely tie the hands of God for he healed some. By the way, that's, it's almost humorous, isn't it? He, he couldn't do any miracles there, oh, except heal a few sick people. Nothing for Christ. But he was kept back from doing more. There appears to be intentionality here that was hindered and restricted and confined and the work of God impeded. Not that God won't do his work and all will be done. But these people missed out on the blessing because they didn't believe. One writer put it this way, we can either help or hinder the work of God in the person of Christ. We can open the door wide for him or slam it in his face by our conception of who he is and the practical expression of our belief. Faith includes God, always does. Unbelief excludes him. And too many churches are running on unbelief. You know, when you follow the arrest of the account in Mark, there is no indication that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. Not saying he did, but there's no account of it. It appears that even that which they had was taken from them. And the town with so much privilege and advantage became nothing. To whom much is given, what's the rest of it? Much is required. So Jesus is really, in the end, amazed by one thing, faith. The presence of vibrant faith or the absence of genuine faith. He wants us to believe and be bold. He wants us to see his mighty power and move out in faith. And I think we've just gotten a little too comfortable with the commonness of Christ and the multitude of his blessing to ever get out and really believe. If Jesus were to come here today, by the way, he is here. If he were to look at your heart today, what would he see? What would amaze him? What would surprise him? What would disappoint him? O ye of little faith, why are you filled with doubts and fear? When I am the sovereign of the universe who loves you so much, I, get, I gave my son to save you? And if I give Jesus to save you, shall I not with him also give you everything else you need? 
if you seek first my kingdom, will not all these other things be given to you? So Jesus put it bluntly in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God. We are to, we're supposed to be people of faith, not merely a creed, but people whose conduct declares that God is alive. And there's no greater time on planet Earth than for us to let that testimony shine than it is right now. Have faith in God. My faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. That he died for me. Believe and be bold. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot go over these verses without a huge rebuke to my own heart. And I have to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you, the almighty God who deposited faith within the soul, we are to cultivate it and grow it and use it and exercise it and see what happens. The great work of God. Or if we hide our faith and ignore it, behold what doesn't happen as the work of God is somehow hampered. I wanna thank you for working in this place for well over 125 years. Lord, I wanna thank you for always showing up and fulfilling every promise and saving every soul that cries out to you. Lord, I wanna challenge all of us who are believers to believe and be bold and walk by faith. In your name we pray, amen.